This message was presented through a partnership between GYC and GYC Europe at the 2012 conference in Linz, Austria. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Let's go in our Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. When you're there, you can say amen. If you're not there, you can say have mercy. Galatians chapter 5. All right, Galatians 5th chapter, verse 5. The Bible says this, this is the Apostle Paul. And he says, For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. In other words, the reason why I take you to this text is because this is the only verse in the Bible where this phrase exists. To use the term righteousness by faith, it's all over the writings of Ellen White, but in terms of the Bible, this is the only verse where this actual phrase is used. And Paul is saying, in verse 5, he says, we, himself, as well as the Galatians, the church that's there in Galatia, He says, we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. So the question immediately emerges, the question, what is righteousness by faith? And why does he use this? Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) All right. This is exciting. We're going to get started now. Actually, I don't need that yet. All right, so Paul is starting off here in Galatians chapter 5 with the only occurrence of this phrase. Now, let's dive into this concept of how familiar are you all with righteousness by faith? You can raise your hands. How familiar are you with righteousness? You say, I'm very familiar. Raise your hands. I'm very familiar. How many of you are like, I'm kind of familiar with righteousness by faith? How many of you are like, I have no idea what righteousness by faith is? Okay, we got a few hands. Now, I want to take you through some of the teachings of Jesus. If we want to understand something in its simplicity and in its power, the best place to go are the teachings of Jesus. He sums up things very easily. And I believe there's no greater teacher than Christ. So, let's start with a verse in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew, in the fifth chapter, Jesus' first sermon as recorded, the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, and we'll be looking in verse 6. When you're there, say amen. So first we're going to explore the concept of righteousness, and then we're going to add the component of faith, and we'll kind of just lightly land into the third angel's message. I'll give you a break at some point, just so your mind can kind of digest what you have heard. Matthew chapter 5, are you there? Say amen. Amen. All right, the Bible says this in verse 6. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? For righteousness, for they shall be what? 
filled. Now, the first thing here that Jesus establishes is that righteousness is something that should be hungered and thirsted for. It is something that responds and satisfies a desire in the human heart. So he says, blessed are those, not based on their name, not based on their socioeconomic status, not based on their knowledge or education or their possessions, but blessed are those who have a desire. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Now, when you hunger for something, a, hung, a, a, a pain of hunger is an innate desire that God placed in man. Yes or no? Yes? You were born with the ability to become hungry. You didn't have to develop it. I wish I didn't have the desire for hunger. I wouldn't eat if I didn't have to. That's just my own personal, Lord, I don't know why you did that, but he did it for a reason. And it's through this that we understand righteousness, just as you and I hunger for bread or thirst for water or whatever we thirst for, Jesus says you can have fostered in your heart and in my heart a desire and a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. In other words, Jesus, by the very statement, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, there are people in the world that do not hunger and thirst for righteousness. Are you following what I'm saying? Only the people who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed, and only the people who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. So something that may, many of you may have no way of knowing, in that translation where the Bible says, and they shall be filled, or for they shall be filled. In the original language, in the Greek, we have kind of different voices of verbs, okay? And what this means is this. You have what's called an active verb. What kind of verb? Active. Or you have a passive verb. What kind? Passive, passive verb. Now, active and passive in Greek, all it simply means is this. Is the subject doing the action or is the subject receiving the action? So in Greek, they have a specific way of putting the verb so that when you're listening or you're reading, you know when it says Sebastian was filled with righteousness. In the Greek, we say, oh, Sebastian was receiving righteousness. He was a passive part. He was the object of the verb. Are you following what I'm saying? In the same sense, if it said Sebastian filled them with righteousness... So in the Greek, they were very particular in these verbs. Another example of this, go to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Keep your finger here in Matthew. Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to look at verse 18. Ephesians chapter 5. When you're there, say amen. All right. Verse 18. If you're not there, say have mercy. Sounds like everyone's there then. All right, the Bible says here, are you there? Yes? It's okay to talk. This is a workshop. It's not a sermon. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, this is what Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. He says, and do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the what? The Spirit. Now, here again, in the original language, it's the same kind of verb. So in other words, when Paul is talking to the church in Ephesus and he says, being filled with the Holy Spirit is an action that is done to you. Are you following what I'm saying? In other words, you wait for someone. If in order for you to be filled with the Spirit or filled with righteousness, there must be a filler. 
There must be someone who fills you. You don't fill yourself. If it was us who were filling ourselves, then the verb would be active in Greek. So I'm not trying to get into all the technicalities, but I'm trying to establish what Jesus is trying to communicate. If we hunger and thirst after righteousness, we are now in a position for the filler of righteousness to fill us. That means one of the reasons why many of us do not have righteousness is because we do not hunger and thirst for it. That's Jesus' fundamental point. Do you really hunger and thirst for righteousness? Let me, let me describe this in, in a couple of different ways. First of all, have you ever gone to a conference like this or an event of some sort? And in this event, the meals are spaced out a lot longer than you normally eat your meals? Yes? Maybe you experienced that yesterday. <laughs> or maybe the meals are not as large as the portions you normally eat at home? Yes? Are you with me? And this is when Sabbath becomes a really big temptation, doesn't it? And we start, you know, mailing. I think the sun has set. I think I can go out and get food now. Because what has happened to us? We have come to a place that when you're like, wait, I usually eat every four hours, five hours. It's been like six hours. Or I usually eat a lot larger portions than a sandwich, an apple, and some water. I don't know if you've had that recently. But, <laughs> but regardless of the fact is, that's what I don't normally eat that for dinner. So as a result, after I ate that, when I woke up this morning and I went to work out at the gym, I remember before I went into the gym to work, to exercise, I had hunger in my stomach. And all I was thinking was, I can't believe breakfast starts at 6.30 in the morning. I was up at 5 a.m. That's how hungry I was. Now, when you have hunger, I went to the gym and I'm watching the clock because I said, I'll just exercise until 6.30 in the morning. Then after 6.30, breakfast will be what? Open. Well, I finished at 6.30, I went downstairs, they still weren't ready. So I'm sitting in the lobby at the hotel. And I'm debating, you know, should I go to my room? You know, should I do this? Should I iron my shirt? Should I? No, your hunger <laughs> tells you, look, we need to deal with this first. <laughs> do you not function that way? Is anyone here kind of like me where when you get hungry or thirsty, your personality changes? <laughs> yes? I'm a very patient person, normally. <laughs> But when I get hungry, every person who's driving slow on the road, right? Every delay, you go and you order your food, and then they come, oh, I'm so sorry, I thought you said this. And now, normally, I'd be like, it's okay, mistakes happen. But because I'm hungry, I'm frustrated with the waiter, with the cook, with the whole restaurant. I'm going to go and blog about how bad of a restaurant they are. <laughs> this guy's getting no tip. And why? Because I'm hungry. Because I'm hungry. And Jesus says, if you have that kind of hunger, and I have that kind of hunger for righteousness, that we are blessed. And not only are we blessed, that means, when the word says blessed, that means that the favor of God is on your life. And not only is the favor of God on your life, or mine, but he says, you will actually be filled 
You have now fostered, a desire has been fostered in your heart and in my heart or in your spirit, however you want to define it, that will actually meet satisfaction. But you also need to know that there are desires, hungers, and thirsts that you and I have in our lives that will never be satisfied in this life. You know, some people hunger for the spotlight, and they may never get it. There are people that thirst, right, to be married, and they may never get married. It's true. There are people that hunger in order to be able to, to preach, or they hunger for be, to be able to, to um, be a leader in some sort of movement, and they want to start this in their country. Whatever the case may be, we have hungers and thirsts that may never be filled. But the Bible says in this verse, Jesus says there is at least one desire. That the moment you have it, you're blessed for having that desire. And in being blessed for having that desire, the blessing comes in the fact that you will be not just given a little bit. You won't be just titillated along the carrot in front of you. Oh, yeah, I'm going to hang righteousness right here and you're just chasing righteousness all around You won't just be satisfied, but he says you will be what? You'll be what? Now, if you're filled, how do you feel feel after you are filled? Do you have a desire anymore? You know, I have this saying, I don't go shopping when I'm hungry. Does anybody understand what I'm talking about? Yes? You should never go shopping when you're hungry. The best time to go shopping is right after lunch (laughs) or breakfast or dinner. (laughs) But if you go to the grocery store and you're hungry, you know what you do, right? You start buying the whole store. Everything looks good. Not only does everything look good, you start desiring things right there in the store. You know what I'm talking about? You're ripping stuff open before you even charged it at the checkout line. You're like, I mean, I'm going to buy this anyway. (laughs) And you drink it. And the whole point here is that all of a sudden, you are now being led to purchase things and to obtain things you would never have obtained if you were filled. Now, we're going to come back to this point, but I just want to make this point very solid in your mind and in my mind. If we go shopping... If we go looking for something and we are not filled, it affects some things that we're willing to spend on that we normally would not if we were filled. I would like to suggest to you that some of the most content and satisfied people are people who have been filled with righteousness. When you know that you're right with God and right with your fellow men, There's a lot of things you have no desire for. Now, Jesus has another phrase. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20. When you're there, say amen. We're right there. We should be right there in Matthew. Are you there? Amen? All right. So the Bible says here in Matthew chapter 5, we're again building. What Jesus talks about with righteousness. The Bible says here in verse 20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness, your what? Your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by how many means? No means, no case, 
enter the what? Kingdom of heaven. Now, first thing we learn about in this verse about righteousness is this. That righteousness, I should say this. Righteousness must be of a certain quality to enter heaven. You cannot and I cannot enter heaven without righteousness. Number one. Number two, your righteousness has to be a certain quality. There are different kinds of righteousness. Did you know that? There are people that actually have righteousness, but it's not the quality that will get you and I into heaven. So he says, look, except your righteousness exceeds. So apparently there are levels of righteousness. Are you following me? Yes? There are levels. Yes, the Pharisees and the scribes, they actually have some righteousness. But it's not enough. It's not the quality that will actually gain you and I entrance into the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says, except the only possibility... For you and for me, and for the hearers at that time in the Gospel of Matthew, is to have a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. The question is, what is the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? That's the natural question. And Christ is about to go into this with six statements. How many statements? Six statements that the Pharisees and the scribes were the teachers. They were the individuals that these people heard about the law. They heard about righteousness at all. So Christ is basically saying the individuals who have taught you about righteousness, your righteousness has to exceed that of your teachers. The priests, the scribes, the people who copied the Bible. And I I love the fact that when I took a Jewish American literature class in college, one of the things that we discussed in that class was the fact that in those days, the concept of being a scribe and a Pharisee was actually very honored for this reason. They had a saying in Jewish culture that says to study the Torah or to study the law. That's what the word Torah means. To study the law or the Torah is to love God. And therefore, there was this concept in Jewish culture of what we call privileged space. What is it called? Privileged space. What that means is Before Jews came to America, the privileged space was in the house. So if you were the privileged partner in the marriage, you stayed home. So the husband would stay home and he would study the Torah. His wife would go to work, reap the fields, work with the children, all that stuff outside the house. When Jews came to America, there was a switch. And in America, the privileged space is not at home. Any, most women in this room probably struggle, well, maybe not in this room, but in the general populace, have no aim of being a housewife. That is not considered a privilege by some. My wife considers it a privilege. (laughs) But there are many who do not. And they say to themselves, man, to just be a mom and to raise children and to stay home and make an Adventist home, I mean, there's no glory in that. That's not a privilege. And therefore, There was this whole shift in Jewish culture for this reason when they came to America. Now the dad is going out. He's not studying the Torah. And immediately you saw the degeneracy of the character and the morality of Judaism in America. All because the scribes and the Pharisees back then, that was the way to do it. You study the law and you seek to obey the law. But let's look at what Christ is is actually going into Matthew chapter 5, 
verse 21. The Bible says this. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not what? You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the? What would they be in danger of? Judgment. If they do what? Murder. Where is that found in the Bible? Exodus chapter 20. Deuteronomy 5. What part of the Bible is that? I hear some mumbling, but... The Torah, but there's specific portion, right? The Ten Commandments, yes? This is not like the rest of the law. In the ancient times of Israel, there's only ten laws that can get you killed. And that's breaking the moral law. See, if you did something else, okay, yeah, you're unclean. But if you kill someone... You're going to be murdered. You will be executed immediately. Any breaking of the Ten Commandments warranted the death penalty. Ten laws. And Jesus comes and he says, listen, I want to give you three aspects of the quality of righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. Number one, the first quality is that the Pharisaical righteousness is external, but the righteousness that will get you and I into the kingdom is internal. Are you following me? Yes? No? Are you lost in the sauce? <laughs> okay. People just kind of staring. All right, notice, Jesus says, you shall do no murder, but whoever murders. Verse 22, in your Bibles, the Bible says this, but I say unto you that whoever is what? Whoever is what? Angry with his? Without a cause shall be in danger of the what? Now notice what Christ says here. If you murder, you'll be in danger of the what? Judgment. If you're angry with your brother in your heart, you're also in danger of the what? Do you see that the punishments are the same? Yes or no? In other words, Jesus says, you heard from the Pharisees and the scribes that if you murder, you can be angry, you can be hateful, you can be resentful, you may not like the brother, you can say, yeah, I got to love you, but I ain't got to like you. That's what we say. I have to love you, but I don't have to like you. And Jesus says, if you're angry and I'm angry with our brother, without a cause, the punishment is the same. See, the Pharisees' righteousness was, did you actually kill him? Let's say you got into a fight, but you didn't kill him. There's nothing wrong with that. I disagree, Jesus says. I'm telling you that internal righteousness, this is not, the law is not just about the actual behavior. And for many of us, if we subscribe to the scribes' kind of righteousness, we are trying to manage behavior. And if we're trying to manage behavior, I just want to behave correctly. I want my external life to be appearing pristine in the sight of other people. And in this appearance that I'm pulling up, Jesus says, listen, that won't get you into heaven. You and I, if we're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, we must have a kind of righteousness that is beyond our behavior. But Christ is saying, I'm going to the very motives that would lead to murder. Why is he saying angry? How come he doesn't say, you know, if you are a little uncomfortable with your brother? Maybe you feel a little awkward with your brother. No, Jesus says, if you are angry. Why? Because why eventually would you murder someone? Because you are what? 
you are angry. Yes or no? Christ says the kind of righteousness that will get you and I to heaven is you got to get the roots that lead to the fruits of the behavior. If you and I want to be righteous, we got to deal with anger. So here's a question. Have you ever had an anger that doesn't just go away when you pray? Yes? This is why I've had many young people ask me. I've prayed about it. And I'm still angry. With my dad who was never there, with my mom who whatever, with my dad who was the way he was treating my mom, with my older brother. And in these, the struggle that this young person is having is the fact that this inner disharmony, this inner anger, yeah, I don't, I'm not killing him. In their mind, there's nothing wrong with this. It just bothers them because they're angry in their heart. Not because they see anything wrong with the anger. This person has warranted this anger. And Christ says, this is what you heard, but this is what I'm telling you. And if you and I are going to talk about righteousness with Jesus, Jesus wants to suggest a righteousness to us that is beyond behavior. You see, how many of you all right now in this room, if you killed someone, you would be shocked? Anyone here? If you lifted your hands and found that the person was not breathing because of what you did, you pushed them, you punched them, you were wrestling, you were choking them, or whatever the case may be, and you were so angry, but you're like, I'm not trying to kill them, and all of a sudden you murdered them, and you realize the person is dead. Many of you raised your hands and said, I would be shocked. And Christ is recommending to us that the righteousness that's going to get us into heaven is to have that same feeling when we have anger. That's what he's advocating. He's saying that that way that you feel like, man, she's not breathing. He's not breathing. We should feel the same shock if we have anger. This is the righteousness that Jesus says will get you and I into heaven. But Jesus doesn't stop here. Look in Matthew chapter 5. Notice in verse 27. We're talking about internal righteousness, which is the righteousness that will get us, get us into heaven. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit what? Okay, and that's found where? The Ten Commandments, yes. And he says, but I say to you, that whoever looks at a woman to do what? Whoever looks at a woman to do what? To lust after her has committed already adultery with her where? In his heart. So here again, Christ is saying we're talking about heart righteousness. He says, listen, you heard you shall not commit adultery. So they say you can do everything. You can do oral sex, you can do masturbation, you can watch pornography, you can watch all kinds of videos and read all kinds of magazines, you can kiss your girlfriend, you can do all these things because your girlfriend is not your wife, your boyfriend is not your husband. And we think it's okay because we have not crossed the line. That's Pharisaical righteousness. And the righteousness that will get you and I into heaven is to deal with the lust. 
Are you hearing what I'm saying? Jesus says pharisaical righteousness are not people who are not concerned with righteousness. They're not people who necessarily just want to do the wrong thing. They are individuals that don't carry it forward deeper into the heart. Behavior is not enough. Because you and I have not publicly, visibly done the wrong thing does not mean that you and I will enter God's kingdom. Christ deepens the law. He takes righteousness and he just raises it up to a whole nother level. But I want you to notice Jesus' remedy here. He says in verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, it causes you to what? Sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now, I want you to notice the transition of thought that Jesus is having. Christ says, if you not only commit adultery, but if you do what? If you what? What word does he use in Matthew chapter 5 in verse 28? If you what? If you look. What organ do you look with? Your eyes. Are you following Jesus' thought? If you look with your eye and you lust in your heart. Christ says, if you're right, what? Eye. But notice, he doesn't say your right eye sins. He says, what if your right eye causes you to sin? There is a medical term called the etiology. Can you say that word? Etiology. Do you guys know what etiology is? Maybe, maybe not. Some of you are medical people, so you know. Etiology means whenever they're doing a little patient assessment, right? This happens a lot to me. You're like, yeah, you know, people come into the doctors. They're like, yeah, doc, my back, my shoulder. I'm kind of getting some swelling right here. And they're like touching and doing these things, hitting your knee, you know, giving you water, all kinds of tests. You're going through machines. And they come and say, we don't really know what's wrong with you. And they write on the report, etiology unknown. What that means is we don't know the cause. Are you following me? We don't know the cause. We know the symptoms, but we don't know the cause. So now Christ says, if you're looking at a woman and you're lusting in your heart, your right eye, he says, causes you to sin. There's nothing wrong with your right eye, yes or no? Is it bad in and of itself? Yes or no? So if there's nothing wrong with your right eye, but he says something that normally is advantageous to you. You get to look around, you get to see, appreciate beauty, color, read music, play basketball, whatever the case may be, your right eye is useful, but he says if it causes you to sin. But notice it's your right eye, not your brother's right eye, yours. This is internal. If your right eye, he says, causes you to sin, then you should pluck it out. Notice he didn't say pluck out the sin. He didn't say if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck out the sin. You know what Jesus tells us to do? Pluck out the eye. But you're like, Lord, there's, the eye is good. Yes or no? Now, Christ is not advocating blindness or any of those kind of things, so let me just be clear. 
But this is what Jesus is saying. You would not be able to lust if you did not have an eye. Yes or no? In other words, there are good things in your life and in mine that can be used for bad ends and purposes. And Christ says, if that ever comes into your experience or mine, we should get rid of the good thing. And it will never happen again. In other words, he says, pluck out your right eye. But he doesn't just say pluck it out. He says, pluck it out and cast it from you. So in other words, you're like, well, Lord, what if I take out my right eye and potentially I could use this thing again, right? So you get formaldehyde, put it in the jar, screw on the top and put it on the shelf. There's my right eye. And one of these days, I'm going to get that eye back and I'm going to be able to do what I was doing before. But Christ says, no, sin is so bad that we should take away the thing that even makes it possible to sin, get rid of it altogether, cast it away from us. To the degree that he says it should perish. So what am I saying? I'm saying this, that Jesus is saying, you and I have to deal with sin in such a way that it will never happen again. tell you a story because stories make things very plain I remember when I was younger in the faith I just become a Christian and you know when you just become a Christian you kind of think you know everything and you think you're kind of invincible can do whatever you know and so I had a girlfriend which I shouldn't have had a girlfriend but I did somehow that happened and I remember that me and this young lady, you know, when you're an Adventist that's serious about Adventism, you try to do these things where you're like, yeah, let's go spend time together, but we're going to read the spirit of prophecy, <laughs> right? So, hey, yeah, come over to my place, just me and her, and we're cracking open first selected messages, and we're reading, yeah, this is powerful, let's pray together. And then right after we would read the spirit of prophecy and pray together, then you start having physical boundary issues. Sitting a little too close. People are like, oh, you know, one kiss doesn't hurt. And I remember, you know, the first time it happened, I was shocked, right? I'm like, man, this can never happen. This should never happen. You can't come over anymore. You start going to the extreme, which, I mean, at that point, you need the extreme. <laughs> and so we said, okay, next time, when you come, we'll study the Bible and we'll read the spirit of prophecy. <laughs> So she came over and we studied the Bible and we read the Spirit of Prophecy and we prayed together. And guess what happened? Some more boundary issues. Then we're like, you know what? Maybe we should exercise, right? Have a season of prayer, read the Bible, read the Spirit of Prophecy the next time. So we went and exercised. Then we came and we had a season of prayer. Then we studied the Bible. Then we studied the spirit of prophecy. And right after, physical boundary issues. And you know, I was talking to my, my spiritual mother. And she said to me, has it ever dawned upon you to just not be alone with her? 
And it was like, Eureka, that's a great idea. But you know why that never entered my mind? Because I didn't want to make it impossible for it to happen again. Are you following what I'm saying? I wanted to take it out, but put it in the jar. And I'm telling you young people because I use this example, personal as it is, simply to make the point that I know that a lot of you, you look good, you bring your Bibles, you're serious, you're at GYC Europe, but let's be honest. (laughs) You're doing the same stuff I'm doing. And we know how to make it look righteous, and then we go in public and we're insecure about our relationship. We're afraid people are going to ask some questions that we feel like is none of their business. But what are you doing in a Christian relationship that people can't know about? Yes or no? What are you doing? See, Christ is saying this kind of righteousness (laughs) that's of the heart, that if you slept with someone that was not your spouse, you would be shocked, just like the murder example. But Christ says we need to have that same kind of shock when we just lust. Impure thoughts. Why would I even think this about this person? And the same way that if you slept with someone that was not your spouse, you would be on your knees repenting. You wouldn't even want to see them. You would try to avoid them at all cost. But we have an impure thought. Christ says, how do you think it got to that place? It's because you already committed it in your heart. The behavior was just a matter of time. Just missing opportunity. And righteousness, Christ says, that will get you and I into heaven has to be internal. Has to be internal. This is making sense. All right, let's see how we're doing on time. All right, we'll have five more minutes and then we'll take a break. Let's look in um, the second quality of righteousness we're going to talk about today. We'll start in verse 38, Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. The Bible says this, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a what? Tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist a what? Not to resist a what? I can't hear you. An evil person. He says, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him. And if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. These are some hard words. I think we're okay with adultery and murder, but this one? Someone slaps you, and you turn the other cheek. I'll tell you right now. (laughs) Growing up, there's many things I despised. And there was two things, and they both had to do with my face. Number one is for someone to spit in my face. I'm just like, there's no way I can bear it. Someone just came and just spit in my face. And the other one was to be slapped in the face. 
Now, fortunately, it never happened to me, except for maybe one time. And the person is still alive, just so you know. (laughs) But Christ says, this is what you heard, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. What Christ is trying to establish is this, as we're going to another quality of righteousness. What Christ is simply saying, as we go to these last two sets of verses, is that righteousness is love. Righteousness is love. In other words, for many of you in this room, including myself, we have cycles in our homes, in our families. And what I mean by cycles is this. I'm the oldest of seven children. Now, when you have six brothers and sisters, plus parents, you can imagine there's a lot of problems that happen. And we're, I mean, wide ages. And we have these cycles where my mom will hear my brother screaming. Her first thought is to call my name. (laughs) Sebastian! I'm not even downstairs. (laughs) And the reason why she does that is because history tells her nine times out of ten, it is you. And then she'll call us upstairs, me and my my middle brother, TJ. We used to get into it a lot. And so she would call us upstairs, and he's crying. You know, of course, he's got to make it look really bad. He's falling on the ground, and, you know, tears everywhere. His snot is coming out of his nose. Ah, Get up. (laughs) But the whole point is this. We go before my mom, and she says, why did you hit him? And you, say, you know what I say? Because he touched my, finish the sentence. And I told him, do not touch this. He didn't want to listen, so he understands consequences. <laughs> but here's my point. He does something wrong to me. My response is to do something wrong to him. Then because I did something wrong to him, he does something else wrong to me. Then because my mother takes his side, now I'm angry at my mom. Then my mom is angry at the fact that I don't even care that I hurt my younger brother. I have no sympathy in my heart. He deserved it. He won't touch my stuff next time. That's the mindset. So now what happens is this dynamic gets created in the family where we're all responding to someone else's evil. And we're looking at his righteousnesses eye for an eye. Fine, since my mom wants to be like this, this is how I'm going to be. Since my brother wants to be like this, this is how I'm going to be. But let's take it to an extreme example. My dad doesn't call, has never called me in years. I'm not saying this is true, but let's just say it was true. In my mind as a son, I'm like, I shouldn't have to call my dad. My dad should want to call me as his son. But because my dad doesn't call me, guess what I don't do? I don't call him. And that goes on for years. Because we're operating on eye for an eye. Then when I actually see my dad, right, then I go see him and no apology. But then he'll come into me and say, hey, you never called. And in my mind, like, you never called. (laughs) You have a phone too. Well, you know, things are busy. Well, I'm busy too. 
But then it gets even deeper when you're talking about people who have wronged us, even in the church. And we're just responding to the evil that's done to us. And Christ says righteousness is more than justice. It's more than justice. There are some people who get their righteousness out of condemning people who are evil. Evil. We say, you know what? Because you got to make this thing real and practical. You take child sex trafficking that's going on all over the world. I cannot read these kind of stories for myself. It's just too much for me. I look at the little posters and you see girls lined up in a house with numbers on their chest. With men waiting outside who are adults to sleep with these young girls and people make money this way. Now in my mind, right, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, I'm like, man, if I can catch these guys, let them experience some pain, it wouldn't bother me. Because what can happen to us in the human heart is we can start thinking, oh, my righteousness is about condemning him. And I'm not doing what he's doing. But you know what? I'm going to give him what he's been giving to me or giving to others. And Christ says, even if a person mistreats you or me, the evil man, he says, do not resist the evil man because he makes it personal. He slapped you. What's your response? Is it to slap him? The man tells you, you know what? Roman soldiers in those days, they command the Jews, carry my stuff for one mile. And Jesus says, you know what you do? Say, I'll carry it two miles. What? Because Jesus is saying righteousness is not justice. It's more than justice. Giving people what they give to you is not righteousness. It will not get us into the kingdom. The wisdom that Christ is espousing to us in our homes, in our friendships, in our church relationships, and even in our co-workers is to say this. When people respond to us in an evil way, because of who we are, because I have righteousness, I must respond in a way of righteousness, which means it's only the righteousness that gets you and I into heaven that returns love, for hatred. That's the only kind. Now I'll pick back up on this when we come back from our break. So let's just recap and then we'll take a break. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 5 is the only verse in the Bible where the phrase righteousness by faith occurs. Number one. Number two, we looked at the fact that we want to look at righteousness according to the teachings of Jesus. And Christ tells us that if we are going to enter the kingdom of heaven, we need to have a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and of the Pharisees, which we said, number one, it is an internal righteousness. Number two, it is a righteousness that is love. Always, no matter how we are treated. We do what we do because of who we are, regardless of who they are. Then he goes on to say, as we looked at in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6, that righteousness is something that ought to be desired and that desire should be fostered in us and that desire is a condition for being filled with righteousness. 
and that there is no righteousness that we can obtain within ourselves. We must be filled. That means it must be done to us. We cannot do it to ourselves. Someone external to us has to fill us with righteousness. Anger, lust, should be as despised as the very things that they lead to. So that's where we're going to pause right now for a moment. We'll take a five-minute break, and we'll have a word of prayer. And I'll give you five minutes, so be back. Five minutes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray, Lord, for your spirit to guide us and to lead us, to give us understanding, and to continue, Lord, to foster that desire in us for righteousness. Thank you, Lord, for your word and for Christ and his teachings and the way that that speaks to our hearts. Revive us again is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, five minutes, we'll start back up again. All right, let's, uh, let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we desperate need, Lord, for the gift of your son, for the love and the grace, the strength that comes through Jesus. Lord, we pray that we would learn even more today how good of a friend Jesus is. That we would appreciate the gift that heaven gave us in him. And Lord, that we may be able to understand the love and the character and the righteousness of God through his word as we continue to explore together as our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Timer. All right. So, we're in Matthew 5. And we're going to continue in the book of Matthew for a little bit. And we're going to go to Matthew 6, verse 33. We have a lot to cover. And I think our seminar is over around 12. Yes, 12. Okay. So we got to make some ground. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33. We're talking about righteousness. So let's see if you guys remember. First thing we talked about, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Righteousness can be what? According to Matthew 5, verse 6. We can, we can be filled with righteousness. What else? We can desire righteousness. Very good. And what's the condition of being filled? It's the hunger and thirst for righteousness. Then we went to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, and we saw that our righteousness, in order to enter the kingdom, must be what? Exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, and... We realize that the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees is what kind of righteousness? External. It's all about managing our behavior. And Jesus advocates an internal righteousness, and we ended on the fact that righteousness is what? It is love. So, 
Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. We know this verse very well. Jesus is talking about not worrying. And this is what he says. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Now notice, first of all, in this verse we see that righteousness is something that should be sought. We talked about hungering and thirsting, yes? So it's one thing to hunger and thirst, it's another thing to seek. See, I can be hungry, but if I don't get up and look for food, I will starve to death. Yes or no? Yes, same thing with righteousness. It's not enough for me to want to be righteous, I have to seek. But notice, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, that it is God's righteousness. So this is a whole nother thing that Christ, before we're talking about the righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes, we're talking about hungering and thirsting, we're talking about internal righteousness. Righteousness is love, and then Christ says, you need to seek God's righteousness. In other words, the righteousness that you and I ought to possess and ought to seek should be the righteousness that God possesses. In fact, it's not even ours. It's his righteousness, not mine. You see, if I told you, go to the parking lot and go get my car, it's still my car, is it not? Yes? So if you're seeking God's righteousness, is it yours? No. It's his righteousness, but he gives it to you somehow. So he says, and in fact, seeking God's righteousness should be a priority, not just a priority, first. We should seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, the promise here is, if we seek righteousness first, we get the things that people in the world seek for. All these things that they look for. What are you going to eat? What are you going to wear? Christ says, God will add that to you if you seek righteousness. Now, Let's go to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. These verses are not as intense. John chapter 16. We're still in the teachings of Jesus. John chapter 16, we're starting in verse 7. John 16, verse 7. Are you there? Say amen. amen. All right, the Bible says this. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I what? Go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Notice verse 9. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. So notice, the reason why the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin is because they don't believe in Christ. In other words, fundamental basis of sin here is unbelief in Jesus. If you and I do not believe in Christ, we are in sin. And he says the Holy Spirit's job is to convict the world of sin. Why? Because they don't believe in him. Then he says of righteousness, because I go to my Father. Now, I want you to look at this very carefully. John 16 Verse 10, 
Jesus says, of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. So, notice here. The Holy Spirit, which is the helper, convicts us of righteousness because Jesus cannot be seen. In other words, if people believed in Christ, there would be no sin. But beyond this, in terms of righteousness, if we were able to see Jesus live out his life today, we wouldn't need the Holy Spirit to convict us of righteousness. We would see it in Christ's life. In other words, the standard of righteousness is the life of Jesus. So you say, okay, I want to know if I'm a righteous person. I want to know if I have righteousness. But not just any righteousness. Whose righteousness? God's righteousness. And he says, God's righteousness is manifest in the life of Jesus. So in other words, if we want to compare ourselves and say, okay, Lord, hungry and thirsting after righteousness, it sounds very, it sounds very uh, intangible. It sounds very away. It sounds like this idea, this thing kind of like, yeah, am I righteous? Am I not righteous? And it ta- we're talking about idea. But when you look at an actual life, you can tell when a person is living a way that you're not living. Yes or no? You can look at them and, you know, you ever had a roommate that was more spiritual than you? And you're kind of like sleeping and they wake up early to pray, but you're still asleep. And you're waking up and they're already on their knees, Lord. Or maybe they got their guitar and they're singing their hymns. <laughs> and as a result of that, you're just looking like, man, this person is so holy. Can you imagine Jesus being your roommate? Every time you wake up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, he's outside in prayer. (laughs) You're just like, Lord, I'm so far. (laughs) I'm so far. I'll wake up to use the bathroom. I won't wake up to pray. And Christ, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit's job is to make Jesus your roommate and my roommate. Because we don't see him. So that as you and I are living, the Holy Spirit says Jesus wouldn't do that. That's not right. I'll give you an example of how the Spirit was working on my heart even this week. I got here on Wednesday to Vienna. And KLM Airlines, they lost my luggage. They left it in Atlanta, Georgia. And so I said, okay, KLM stands for keeping my luggage missing. (laughs) And it was two days. They said, it should come tomorrow morning. It didn't come. It should come Friday morning. It didn't come. (laughs) So now I called the airline. They said, listen, you know, if you need to go buy any clothes, a suit, shoes, toiletries, whatever you need to buy, just get us the receipts. We'll usually reimburse up to 100 euros. But if you need to spend more than 100 euros, it's fine. We'll reimburse you. So I'm like, you said you'll reimburse me for anything. They said, yeah, as much as it costs, that's fine. So I'm like, anything? Because <laughs> I think my iPad was in there. <laughs> but I remember after I got off the phone, I was sitting in my hotel room and I was like, man, this is crazy. I need to go shopping. <laughs> but then right before that, the spirit said, wait, 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 Sebastian. If your luggage comes tomorrow morning, you don't need a suit tomorrow. You're not speaking, and it's not Sabbath until Friday night. So if your luggage comes before Friday night, you have no reason to buy a suit. I'm like, but Lord, they lost my luggage. (laughs) (laughs) 
But in that moment, the Holy Spirit was speaking to my heart and saying, Sebastian, what is the Christian thing to do? Just because you can exploit this airline and everyone else may do it, should you do it? Is it right for me to buy a suit when I don't need one? It's not right. It's not. Even though I could and I would send them the receipt and they would use it, but do they know that all I'm doing is walking around, sitting in a hotel, typing on a laptop? They don't know. They just look at the receipt and they say, we lost this guy's luggage for three days. Our fault. We'll send the money. But God knows. And when Jesus is your roommate, you're just like, man, I can't do that. So I had to pray and I said, okay, Lord, here's the deal. If I don't have my suit by Sabbath, you know, praise the Lord, my luggage came. But I said, if I don't get my suit by Sabbath, then I'll buy a suit. It's legitimate. Because, you know, when Elder Finley called me up on stage, if I didn't have a suit, we would have had a problem. <laughs> I would not have come on stage. <laughs> and he and I would have started arguing. <laughs> but the whole point is this. Is the fact that the Holy Spirit's job is to bring us an understanding of righteousness because we are not able to see Jesus live in 2012. We lose a lot by lacking in a life example of how righteousness looks. You know, my sister was telling me, she's not a Christian, but you know, even in the world, she's like, you know, I'm so tired of guys that are just interested in one thing. I'm so tired, you know, and then, you know, people have complaints about all kinds of different things in society. And you realize people just want to see a person's life that is moral. They want to see a person's life who is honest. It's almost like you can't find a marriage where there hasn't been infidelity. You can't find a pastor that hasn't had some struggles. You can't find individuals, perhaps in the conference or in the leadership or structures of the church, that you're like, who isn't actually faithful to the Adventist message the whole time? It seems so few. And as a result of that, you can imagine that Christ came not so that his life would be the only life that we look at and say, wow, that's righteousness, I want to be like Jesus. That's ultimately the goal. But Christ wants that life lived out in you and in me so that people can say, you know, I had issues with Christianity until I met you. And I realized the power, the pleasantness, and the joy of a Christian life. And I'll tell you one thing very clearly before we move on to the next text is oftentimes, as I do ministry on a secular university campus, and they claim these students come and they have arguments lined up as to why they don't believe in the Bible, as to why Jesus never really existed, at least not the Jesus that we preach. And as they're lining up with the arguments, and you're like, okay, Lord, I need to figure out more intellectual arguments to respond to them. But immediately what you find out is, as I dig into their lives and we go back and forth, I find out that they were bullied at a Christian school. You find out that this lady's son was mistreated by some other kids at a Catholic academy. You find out that this guy's son got into homosexuality at an Adventist school. And then as a result of that, then we're like, man, people don't care for Christianity. And the greatest argument against Christianity are Christians. So this is why Gandhi will say, 
I like your Christ. I don't like your Christians. Gandhi was this close to becoming a Christian. And everything he did was based on what we just read in Matthew chapter 5. And he told the Christians that. One of my favorite interviews with Mahatma Gandhi is the fact that when, he, when Live Magazine came to interview him the second time, it was during World War II, and Hitler was, you know, rifling through Europe. And Life Magazine came to, to Gandhi and they said, Mr. Gandhi, so we know you advocate passive, active passive resistance. And you know, t- you know, no eye for an eye, no tooth for a tooth. Turn the other cheek, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Would you advocate that with Hitler? And Gandhi said, of course. And then the reporter looked at him and said, well, don't you think many people would die, many lives would be lost? And Gandhi looked at the reporter and says, are not many lives lost now? And then he said these words. He says, you don't show a man his evil by returning evil to him. You give him a reason to be evil to you again. You show a man evil by not giving him evil, but showing him the blood that comes when he is evil. And as I thought about this, and I'm thinking, all of this based on Matthew chapter 5. That he says, I think what Jesus is talking about, and really, he's going to the cross of Christ. Jesus didn't show us our sin by fighting us. He didn't show us our sin by resisting us. He didn't show us our sin and our wickedness or the goodness of God by embarrassing us. He did it by doing nothing. I'm going to show you what you will do if I give my life into your hands. And when God says, you know what? Your will, Pilate. Your will, the Jews. Your will. And when things go your way, what is the result? Jesus dies. That's the result when humanity is in complete control and God decides, I'm out of this. And he forsakes Jesus. But that is one of the most powerful lessons of Jesus' cross. He doesn't show us our sin in the goodness of God by making us bleed. But by letting us make him bleed. And the irony is, Our evil to him is what saves us. That's the crazy thing. He was there because Pilate was a coward. He was there because the Jews were jealous. He was there because Judas was greedy. Those are all true, but at the same time, he was there because the Bible says it pleased God to bruise him. At the same time. So in the life of Christ we find the perfect example of righteousness. But we're talking about righteousness by faith. And not just any righteousness, we're talking about God's righteousness. Now, let's go forward so that we can uh, get to the third angel's message. Let's go to Acts chapter 10. Verse 35. Acts chapter 10, verse 35. Are you there? Amen. Amen. All right. The Bible says this. And I'm not there. (laughs) Have mercy. 
It says this, but in every nation, how many nations? Every nation, the Bible says, whoever fears him and works what? Works what? Whoever fears God and works righteousness, the Bible says, is accepted by who? By him, capital H, yes? So notice this. If you fear God, I fear God, and we work righteousness, the Bible says, no matter our nation, no matter our culture, no matter our age, no matter our gender, we are accepted by God. In other words, righteousness is the means by which you and I gain acceptance with Jesus. This is what Peter is saying. If a person works righteousness, this is the means by which we are accepted by him. Now, this concept is huge because if that is the case, and working righteousness is the means by which we're accepted of him, is the means by which we enter into the kingdom of heaven, then the question then becomes, okay, it has to be God's righteousness, not just the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, not just external. So you're like, okay, working righteousness, be accepted by you, but then how do I get a hold of this righteousness? That, that becomes the immediate question. And Acts, we're going to go to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17 and verse 31 and kind of build on this again to establish what, what we're going to have to do in the judgment. Acts chapter 17 verse 31. Are you there? All right, the Bible says this. Because... He, that is God, has appointed a day on which he will do what? He will judge the world. Is that the whole world? Yes or no? That's the world. Literally everyone in the world. He will judge the world in what? In righteousness by who? The man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Who is risen from the dead? Jesus. So who is the person by which God will judge the world? Christ. The person who is the judge is the person who has lived up to the standard of the judgment. So Christ can look at you and I and say, you can't say, well, Lord, I'm a human being. Jesus says, I'm a human being. You can't say, well, you know, I was born in a poor family. I was born in a poor family. You can't say I was uneducated. Jesus was uneducated. You can't say, well, Lord, I didn't have enough money. The environment was rough where I grew up. Jesus says, I didn't have any money, and I also grew up in a rough neighborhood. Well, Lord, you don't understand. I only had a single parent. Well, guess what? Joseph died when I was very young. What excuse can we give to Christ? What excuse? And so if this is the means by which we're going to be judged... We can hunger and thirst. We can seek it. But the question automatically bubbles over, how then do I get this righteousness? So, here we go. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We're speeding a little bit. Romans chapter 1. And look in verse 16 and 17. Are you there? Say amen. All right. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. 
for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, very clearly, very quickly, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. That means good news of Jesus because it is the power of God unto salvation. We know this verse. But he says in the gospel, in the good news of Jesus, the righteousness of God is revealed. You're like, where? From faith to faith. From faith to faith. What that phrase simply means is this. From the beginning, it's by faith. To the end, it's by faith. From the beginning to the end. In other words, you could take these two verses and basically say this is Paul's summary of the entire book of Romans. He's going to spend chapters just on certain aspects of this verse. And we're not going to necessarily go through that in detail, but I want to establish one quick thing before we jump to Revelation 14. If the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, and the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. So if I believe the gospel of Jesus, it is in that message that I believe that the righteousness of God is revealed. So now the gospel that you preach to people and that I preach to people is the means, number one, to satisfy those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's how people are filled. But it's not just righteousness like behavioral change. It is internal righteousness. It is the righteousness that is love. And therefore, if you and I are returning evil for evil, we haven't fully believed the gospel. Because the righteousness of God would be manifested. If you and I are still in this, you know what, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. We're still messing around like, you know, I won't pluck my eye out. We have not yet fully believed the gospel. If we're just trying to manage behavior, I wish I could just spend a whole seminar on that idea alone. As to why that righteousness is unacceptable, insufficient. We want to look righteous rather than be righteous. But I have to move forward because notice the next verse. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. It says, for the wrath of God is what? What is it? From heaven against what? All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do what? Suppress the truth in? Follow the logic. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. To him that believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. For, the word F-O-R means because. The reason why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, he says, for it is the power of God. Okay, from faith to faith to him that believes. Why? Because in it, why is it the power of God unto salvation? Because in the gospel, you receive the gift of God's righteousness. Now, if you and I receive the gift of God's righteousness, he says, from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith, for the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. Now, this is the key that launches us 
into the third angel's message. Because the Bible says the wrath of God is revealed. That is the reason why the gospel and righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. That's why this is essential. It's because the wrath of God is out there against unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. What kind of men? Men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, if we go here. Let's go to Revelation 14. Revelation chapter 14. Beginning in verse 9. The Bible says, as we are all familiar, then a third angel followed them saying, with a loud voice. If any man does what? 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 I want you to understand, this is the critical issue. Worship comes up twice in this angel's message. So you say, if any man worship, verse 9. Now go ahead and look at verse 11. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, who what? Worship the? And his? Or whoever receives his mark in his forehead or in his hand. Now I want you to understand what's happening here. In this angel, it says the third angel. There is no fourth angel. First angel flies, and it says, okay, fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. And... Worship him. Then it says another angel followed. So now if the first angel is going to every kindred, every tongue, every nation, every tribe, the second angel is following him. Wherever the first angel goes, the second angel goes. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Wherever the second angel goes, the third angel goes. The problem is in the Bible, after this message, it's just reaping. This is it. There is nothing after this. The third angel is the last angel. And his message twice. The issue is one of worship. He says, if any man, I don't care who you are. I don't care how much you know. I don't care how long you've been in the church. If you or I worship the beast or his image. Let's read it. If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the what? The wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. Now, here we go. Now I have to go to just autopilot mode. And this is when I just basically start preaching. I'm assuming you're Adventist, so I don't have to necessarily go into all the details of the symbols. First of all, the, first, the third angel's message says, if any man worship the what? The beast. Who is the beast? Who is the beast? You guys are whispering like, <laughs> like you're Catholic. <laughs> it's like, uh, the beast. <laughs> we can't deny it. <laughs> 
Who is the beast? The papacy. Now, understand that the beast power is a composite power from Daniel chapter 7. Yes? He's got the body like a leopard, the head of a lion, the feet of a bear. So at this point in time, he is the conglomerate of all these different things. But we saw in Daniel 7 that this dreadful and terrible beast, the little horn, arose on top of the beast. Oh, that's my alarm. Now, this little horn is now transitioning pagan Rome to papal Rome. Now, as papal Rome, the question is not of the beast, is not religion and state. The issue of the beast is church running the state. You see, the fundamental issue here with the beast is that the beast says, in order to enforce our decrees, to make you moral, to make you religious, we're going to use human law and strength. We're going to use torture. So the Catholics, they come in on a mission. They say, look, if you don't accept the Catholic church as the true church, we're going to wipe out your whole island. Um, no, we're not going to accept your religion. So they wipe out their whole island. That's what they did. But this beast power is the church running the state. And worshiping the beast is not bowing down and prostrating and saying, you know, I'm worshiping before the Pope or Catholicism. That's not what it means to worship the beast. The spirit of the Antichrist, according to 1 John chapter 4 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, is someone that was inside, apparently had a relationship with Christ, but Antichristos in the Greek means in the place of Jesus. You see, who is Christ? The word Christ, Christos, is the Greek transliteration of Meshach, which means the anointed one. So Jesus, when you wanted to anoint something in Hebrew, you Meshach this thing. So when they took the tabernacle and Moses was done, Aaron went in and anointed every article of the sanctuary. The Hebrew word is Meshach. That's why the sanctuary is compared to Jesus, and this is why Jesus had to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Every part of him was anointed just like the sanctuary. And it was after he was anointed that the presence of God came into the sanctuary. It's crazy stuff. Now in the New Testament, you say Christos, the Christ, has to do with salvation, the means by which sin is taken away. Now, the B says, I'm going to come in the temple of God Showing myself to be God as if I am God. That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So here you have Antichrist in the place of Jesus. A person who's in the temple of Jesus showing himself as if he is Jesus. He's God. That's what Antichrist means. The beast power. And this power says, look, I am in the place of God and this power uses secular government to enforce but then you come to the lamb-like beast in Revelation 13. And the lamb-like beast is who? United States. You guys want to say that nice and loud, huh? <laughs> the United States. Now, here you have lamb-like beast. Okay? Looks like a lamb, but it speaks like a what? A dragon. And it's this beast, lamb-like beast, that comes up from the earth 
it says it made an image to the first beast. So now follow this. The church takes over the power of the state. And it basically legislates religion to say, look, if you don't follow this, we'll deal with you as if you stole from the store. As if you murdered someone. And religious law was the worst kind of law to break. Now you come to the lamb-like beast and he says, I'm going to make an image to the beast. Now the question is, what is the beast? The beast is the church running the state. Now you have in America, what then is the image of the beast? So now we come to America and you say, well, Protestants, they left Europe to come to America to find religious freedom, freedom from a pope, freedom from a king, all that stuff. And then as a result of that, they come to America thinking, all right, we're going to start this whole new religion, but, but Protestantism, when it begins to use the power of the state to enforce its religious laws, it becomes an image to the beast. Just like the original. Now, if any man worships the beast or his image or receives his mark, everything is related to the beast. And the beast says salvation, this is a Catholic teaching, salvation is in the church. It is by association with the church that you are saved. That's Catholic teaching. And I have a Catholic pamphlet at home that a guy gave to me on a plane. I didn't even know that the Catholic people had tracks. So he's like, hey, take a look at this. Wow. <laughs> so uh, you get home and you crack open the pamphlet, and then he says, hey, as you're reading through the pamphlet, they say, you know, many Protestant religions teach that man is only saved by faith. But that is not true. In fact, James chapter 2 says, a man may say he have faith, but show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Therefore, man is saved by faith and works. And this is why you should abandon Protestantism. Do you understand that the fundamental issue with the beast is the belief that you and I can be righteous not only by faith but by our works. Now I have to pause here for a moment to read Something from the spirit of prophecy. Uh, this is found, Special Testimonies, volume 9, I think it's page 62. This is what she says. What is justification by faith? It is the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust. And doing for man that which it is not in his power to do for himself. When men see their own nothingness, they are prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. When they begin to praise and exalt God all the day long, then by beholding, they are becoming changed into the same image. What is regeneration? She asks in a question. It is revealing to man what is his own real nature, that in himself he is worthless. In himself he is worthless. 
It is God doing for you what you cannot do for yourself. In other words, when the beast says, I'm going to depend on human power and government to enforce, that's how I will make you righteous. And not only on that, this is a religion of works. So, brothers and sisters, what we have to understand, before I go to the next symbol, is that when Catholicism came upon the scene, its first abandonment was on the issue of salvation. You and I are righteous through our works. That whole system. We know that. We're familiar with that. But where we get off is Protestantism in America, the moment that they abandoned the same thing, is the same time that this image to the beast is set up. But this is not the only point to make. Because the Bible says, not only do we worship the beast in his image, but we receive his what? His mark. So notice the warning. Do not worship the beast. Do not worship his image. Do not receive his mark. What is the mark of the beast? Okay, Sunday, right? Now, people don't receive the mark of the beast until it's enforced by law. That's just basic understanding prophetically. But before I deal with this in more specificity, if the mark of the beast has to do with Sunday sacredness, keeping of Sunday after it is enforced by law, the issue of Sunday is that Sunday is set up by who? Huh? Men, right? So humanity, through the Pope, says, by our authority, right? We changed the Sabbath from Saturday to when? Sunday. And therefore, in order to commemorate the authority of the church, to do so, we keep Sunday. And this is why Catholicism writes and says, listen, you guys all heard of Rome's challenge. If Protestants want to claim to be biblical, they need to keep the seventh day Sabbath. Because it's ours. And the longer they continue to keep Sunday, they are paying tribute to the beast, image of the beast. But now the mark of the beast is when keeping Sunday becomes enforced by law. And it's either your life, either you die, or you dishonor God. Now why am I bringing this up? Because if you worship any of these, the Bible says you and I will receive the wrath of God. Full strength. And Romans chapter 1 says, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who do what? What do they do? They suppress the what? In what? Unrighteousness. Now, is there anything in Romans 1 that talks about worship as a result of this? Let's go to Romans 1. We're going to come back to Revelation again. Romans 1. Romans chapter 1. <clears throat> the Bible says, For the wrath of God, beginning in verse 18, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest to them. Excuse me, for God has shown it to them. 
For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise. They became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Now, what I want you to do after we go through this, look at verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all what? Filled with all what? Now, he says the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. What kind of men? Men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They hold it down. Now, the Bible says here in Romans chapter 1 that these individuals, God has shown it to them. He's made it manifest to them. This is the case. His eternal power and his Godhead, it's clear so that they are without excuse. But, but, they chose, the Bible says, in Romans chapter 1, they chose, in Romans chapter 1, instead of, Though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. Now, in verse 25, this is the verse that I want to focus on. Who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Here's the progression in Romans 1. Men refuse to believe the gospel. Because men refuse to believe the gospel, the Bible says this is what they end up doing. They suppress the truth. Why are they suppressing the truth? Why are these men suppressing the truth? It's okay, you can answer They feel judged by it. Why else would you suppress the truth? They love the lie. They don't love the truth. It condemns them. They're ashamed of it. Getting warmer. I'm going to read you a statement from Great Controversy, page 599. Many a portion of scripture which learned men pronounce a mystery or pass over as unimportant is full of comfort and instruction to him who has been taught in the school of Christ. One reason why many theologians have no clearer understanding of God's word is they close their eyes to truths which they do not wish to practice. They close their eyes to truths which they do not wish to practice. An understanding of Bible truth depends not so much on the power of the intellect brought to the search as on the singleness of purpose and the earnest longing after righteousness. 
and understanding of Bible truth. You see, on every side, the reason why God gave the gospel, the reason why he gives in the gospel his righteousness is so that you and I do not suffer the wrath of God. But now, the wrath of God, I'm going to go to one story in the Old Testament in a moment. But the wrath of God that is revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men, etc., etc., who suppress the truth. So what Paul is talking about in Romans 1, he's dealing with the Gentiles, but the principles by which he is espousing is revealing to you and I to say, look, in this message of the third angel, we see men. Why are they receiving the wrath of God? Because just like the men in Romans 1, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Why are these individuals suppressing? What truth? Is it just the Sabbath? Is this just about, hey, we don't want to keep Saturday, we want to keep Sunday? Is that why people are going to drink the wine of the wrath of God? This is what I want to suggest. Thank you. This is what I want to suggest to you this morning. I think it's still morning. <laughs> I want to suggest to you that the Sabbath... The Sabbath, the mark of the beast, which is brought up by the image of the beast, which was instituted by the beast himself. If righteousness by faith is God doing for you what you cannot do for yourself, if righteousness by faith is laying into the dust the glory of men by the work of God, then in the Sabbath, it is a central issue not because it's just a part of the law of God. It is a central issue because in the Sabbath is the very lesson of righteousness by faith. Permit me to explain. The one day that God calls you and I to be holy is the day he asks us to do nothing. Yes or no? He says, I want you to keep this entire day holy, but guess what I want you to do? Nothing. What is God teaching us about righteousness and holiness? He's the one who makes us holy, but he also is saying what? It has nothing to do with what you do. Are you following what I'm saying? The day that is holy is the day with activity that has been put aside. In other words, in the Sabbath, God says the day of rest is the day where you are to be holy. And how are you holy for that 24 hours? In your own strength? Because you ironed your clothes and your food is prepared? Is that why the Sabbath is kept holy? No. You can't keep 24 hours holy on your own. The only way for you and I to keep 24 hours holy without sin is to rest in God. That's the only way to do it. You say, Sebastian, you're talking crazy. I'm talking crazy. Well, thankfully, you can always go to Ellen White. <laughs> it is not conclusive evidence. I'm in Acts of the Apostles, page 51. It is not a conclusive evidence that a man is a Christian because he manifests spiritual ecstasy under extraordinary circumstances. Holiness. Listen to what she says. Holiness is not rapture. 
What she means is, it's not like this person walking around smiling, acting otherworldly. Oh, how are you? Yes, good evening, brother. And we're just walking around like we're not in this world and that there's not sin and suffering. She says, holiness is not rapture. She goes on. She says, it is an entire surrender of the will to God. It is living by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It is doing the will of our Heavenly Father. It is trusting God in trial, in darkness, as well as the light. It is walking by faith and not by sight. It is relying on God with unquestioning confidence and resting in his love. Listen to what I'm saying to you. Holiness is resting in the love of God. And the day that God calls you and I to keep holy is the day he calls us to rest. You see, these individuals, this warning, you're going to receive the wrath of God if you continue to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You're going to receive the wrath of God if you're going to eventually start worshiping the creature more than the creator. That's what you're doing. By acknowledging the Sunday Sabbath, acknowledging the image of the beast, and acknowledging the beast himself, the man of sin. You see, the fundamental issue with the beast is that I'm not going to worship a man who didn't die for me. That's the issue with the beast. I'm not going to bow down before a man who didn't spill his blood for my sins. There's only one man that did that for us. That's Jesus. And the Pope tries to usurp that. Antichrist, because that's what the devil wants. It is his spirit. Remember, the dragon is the one that gave him his power and his seat and his great authority. Today, when we talk about righteousness by faith and the third angel's message, it's not just about, let me give you the 50 points, how do you know this is the Catholic Church? The fundamental departure of Martin Luther was the fact that it is faith what? Faith what? Alone. That was his first point of departure. Are you understanding how huge that was at that time? So when we talk about the third angel's message, this is not something new, brothers and sisters. This is the finishing of the Reformation. They started it. Protestantism got off track. Because if you're going to be righteous by faith, guess what? You got to keep all of the law by faith. <laughs> you can't be like, I keep nine commandments by faith. No, righteousness, <laughs> perfect conformity to the law of God. There's no other way for you and I to be accepted with him. And in our acceptance with God, that acceptance comes through our resting in his love. God wants you to be saved. God wants you to reach out after him in faith. He wants you to trust him. But you see, let me just let you know what's waiting for you and I on the other side. In Desire of Ages and in Patriarchs and Prophets, she makes this statement, Ellen White. She says, wherever the principle is held, 
that man can save himself by his own works, there is no barrier to sin. Did you hear what I just said? Wherever the principle is held that man can save himself by his own works, there is no barrier to sin. There is no depths you and I will not fall into evil. The only barrier is to rest in his love. It is to trust God in the darkness as well as in the light. It is to have an entire surrender to the will of God. So when we preach the image of the beast, when we preach the beast, the issue is not, let me give you the 50 points to know this is the Catholic Church. The issue is, why is it that this is the Antichrist? False form of salvation. It is not in the church. It is in Christ alone. By faith alone. Through grace alone. So when they're reading the Bible, he says, look, apart from the law, so when Paul says, we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Let me, how much time do I have? 15 minutes. The issue with the beast Believing that your works can save. It will put us on a path where there'll be no barrier to sin. You go to the image of the beast, the same exact thing. We want to use governmental power, the strength of man. You go to the mark of the beast and the issue of Sabbath. This is the sign between you and me that I, the Lord, sanctify you. I'm the one that sets you aside. I'm the one that makes you holy. Not you, not your church, not your environment. In other words, in the third angel's message, when Ellen White says, I'm going to read the quote in a minute, that it is righteousness by faith in verity, because people asked her, is this righteousness by faith? Is this what we're supposed to be preaching? You and I have no idea of the fact that our call to preach righteousness by faith, that is in actuality our message. That's our issue with Catholicism. That's our issue with Protestantism that has fallen away. That is our issue with the mark of the beast. It's not just because Revelation is like, yeah, you'll get the wrath of God. Why? Because you suppress the truth. What truth are they suppressing? It's not the Sabbath. It is the fact that you are saved by faith alone. That's what's being oppressed, held down. The result? You worship that which is not God. It leads us to idolatry. Let me read this statement and then I'll open it up if anyone has any questions.
This is from Last Day Events, page 199. Several have written to me inquiring if the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message. And I've answered, it is the third angel's message in verity. The Lord in his great mercy sent a most precious message to his people through elders E.J. Wagner and A.T. Jones. This message was to bring more prominently before the world. Before the who? Before the world, the uplifted Savior, the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. It presented justification through faith in the surety. It invited the people to receive the righteousness of Christ, which is made manifest in obedience to all the commandments of God. Many had lost sight of Jesus. I just have to stop on that statement right there. She's talking about the Adventist church. Many had lost sight of Jesus. They needed to have their eyes directed to his divine person, his merits, his changeless love for the human family. All power is given into his hands that he may dispense rich gifts unto men, imparting the priceless gift of his own righteousness to the helpless human agent. This is the message that God commanded to be given to the world. It is the third angel's message, which is to be proclaimed with a loud voice and attended with the outpouring of his Holy Spirit in a large measure. The message of Christ's righteousness is to sound from one end of the earth to the other. Excuse me. To prepare the way of the Lord. This is the glory of God, which closes the work of the third angel. The last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love. The children of God are to manifest his glory. In their own life and character, they are to reveal what the grace of God has done for them. This message that we say we're called to preach, first, second, third angel's message. I can guarantee you that some of you have come to church and someone was preaching on the love of God and you thought this is not the Adventist message. I can guarantee some people came to church in this room and the preacher got up and he was preaching the fact that you cannot be saved except by faith alone in Christ. And you said, that's not the Adventist message. Like, why is this guy talking about the love of God? This is weak sauce. It's an American idiosyncrasy, which means this is weak milk, <laughs> spiritual baby food. But here's some news for you. Jesus says the love of God is actually one of the weightier matters of the law. And I can guarantee you right now that if I challenge you, go home and do an entire week on the love of God, you would struggle. Do an entire week of prayer just on the love of God for the human family. Many of us would struggle. And if we're struggling to preach the love of God, we're struggling to preach the Adventist message. Our message is not about condemnation and drinking the wine of the wrath of God. 
Our message is about the fact that if you do not accept his love and rest in his love and allow God to save you, this is what's coming. Why is it so hard for us to let our glory be left in the dust and to say, why are you here? It had nothing to do with you. Zero. And that's hard for us to accept. Does that, man, does that mean that man does nothing? Doesn't mean that. Works are evidence that we have been saved. But it's not the mechanism. Are there any questions before I pray? Yes. 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 Yeah, appear to all men. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Okay. Your assurance is in Christ. As long as you have Jesus, you have assurance. You don't have Jesus, you do not have assurance. See, this is what Christ is trying to instruct in John 15 when he says, Abide in me, I'm the true vine. Why does he say true vine? Because in the Old Testament, according to Psalms and in Isaiah, the people of God was viewed as a vine. The Catholic Church is not the first one to think that we're saved by association. That's why John came preaching and said, You think because you're the seed of Abraham you're going to be saved? Your association with Israel is no guarantee. He says God can raise up from these stones sons to Abraham. So Christ came and said, listen, you thought by association with the church you'll be saved. I'm telling you, I'm the true vine. Your connection to Jesus is what guarantees that you'll be saved. That's why he keeps saying abide in me and I in him. It's mutual. It's not just I got to rest in Jesus. I got to allow Jesus to abide in me. So the assurance of salvation is the moment that we have Christ. And as long as we abide in Christ, we have assurance because Christ will save us. That's what he came to do, to protect us from the wrath of God. I can give you texts about that right after the meeting. Good question. Any other questions? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay, okay, good question. So what I mean by the phrase righteousness by faith has to do with two things. On one end, it deals with the righteousness of God as in his own character being vindicated. When Paul says the righteousness of God is revealed. The other aspect is God's actual character is given to you and I. Why? Because righteousness 
if I could put it in a simple phrase, is restoring us to our original purpose as humanity. Jesus is what we were created to be like. But because of sin, we are not like him. So now the underlying theme of the Bible is how do I get Sebastian back to where Adam was before? In character. I'll change his, his flesh at the resurrection. But in terms of his character, how do I get him back to that place? That is righteousness. Original state of man before the fall of sin. Now, when I first come to God, am I there? No, I'm there by faith because I've accepted Christ. Then there's sanctification by faith. That's why he says it's from faith to faith. So in looking at the sanctuary, each apartment of the sanctuary deals with a different aspect of sin. So you have in the outer court, you're dealing with the condemnation of sin. The altar saves you from the penalty. Then when you come into the holy place, Jesus' ministry there is what saves us from the power of sin. So this is what Paul is dealing with in Romans chapter 6. When he say, look, you're no longer servants to sin. But then you go to the idea of the presence of sin, which is dealt with heavily in Hebrews. Where he says, listen, the blood of bulls and goats cannot deal with your sins. So the author of Hebrews is telling us Jesus' blood is so powerful that it actually literally blots out our sins. So that he says, when they sacrificed the lambs and the bulls and the goats, they had consciousness of their sins. But when Jesus' blood has actually gone through the process of the sanctuary, we will have no more consciousness of our sins. You won't know them. They're blotted out because you gave them to Christ by faith. That's what the sanctuary is teaching us, what Jesus does. He doesn't stop at the cross. Oh, you're not going to burn forever, but... As Ellen White puts it, justification by faith is the ticket. Sanctification is packing to go on the trip. Making sure you can actually live in heaven. And then you have glorification, which is the literal change of the body. When you're glorified. What is sown in the ground is not what is reaped. That's not what you get in time. So when I say righteousness by faith, I'm talking about the original standing that man was created to be like. From his creation. Which is to be in the image of God. And you have that by faith from the whole time. Yes. Yes. Okay, good question. So, remember that individuals are not judged by things that they don't know. So when you go to Daniel, right, the book of Daniel, chapters 2 through 7 is actually a chiasm. That means it's designed to be parallel. And one of the things that he's trying to get across in the judgment is when he comes to Belshazzar, he says, Belshazzar, all this you knew, but you did not do. And he's talking about Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. He doesn't say, you knew about the Ten Commandments, you knew about the Sabbath. No, God always judges us according to the light that he has given. So with the thief on the cross, from what he saw of Christ, he expressed faith in Jesus. So the thief on the cross will be resurrected by faith in Christ, but what happens is what? He's not where, let's say, Enoch is when he goes to heaven in terms of his development into the glory of God. So God created us for infinite development. Not like, oh, I'm stagnantly perfect, I have arrived, therefore I will never grow. No, even Moses, Enoch, when they get to heaven, they still have aspects of the glory of God to develop. 
So no man's going to get to heaven and be like, I have arrived, therefore I am the character of God. No. Jesus is what you and I shall be at the end of eternity. Exactly like him, but you never get to the end of eternity. It's just a matter of where you start. That's the purpose of also the um, Beatitudes. Even if you're just poor in spirit, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Yes, hold on, let me, go ahead. Uh-huh. Now, how do you match these two about the righteousness? By faith. Yes. Okay. Very good question. Romans chapter 2 is actually what that is about. Oh, sorry. I'll repeat the question. His question is, how do we combine the two of righteousness by faith but judgment by works? So Romans chapter 2 actually deals with this very specifically. What he's saying, I'll take you there just really briefly. Romans chapter 2. And he's saying this <clears throat> in verse 1. He says, therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things in doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself what? Wrath. In the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his what? Deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good, seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, etc., etc. This is how it works. Righteousness by faith, the Jews, this is why Paul is writing this, because the Jews think, oh, because I'm a teacher of the law, you know, I'll be fine. He says, no, 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 no. Judgment is by deeds. Salvation is by faith. So you say, well, where did the deeds come in? Essentially, judgment is to give, um, how do I say this? Judgment is to vindicate the grace of God in terms of what he has done in a human life. So it's not that you're saved by the works. It's that because you are saved through righteousness by faith, that grace of God works, works out into your life. So that when you are held up to the standard of the judgment by your works, you pass. So the judgment is not an issue of fear for a Christian. Not for a person who has faith in Christ. There's no fear to them. The fear of judgment comes upon the person who's not practicing the law. But how do you practice the law? By faith. <laughs> it's only through faith that you can practice the law. So whenever people talk about the judgment actually vindicates the concept of righteousness by faith. It is showing you what God's grace can do in the human life. That's why in Romans chapter 3, they will ask the question <clears throat> in verse, uh, where is it? In verse 5 of Romans chapter 3, he'll say, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who afflicts wrath? Paul says, I'm speaking as a man. 
Certainly not, for then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? Why not say, let us do evil that good may come? And as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say their condemnation is just. So Paul is dealing with the arguments that the Jews are bringing, that he's experiencing, and he's saying, look, if God is vindicated by my sin, then why don't we sin? Why don't we do evil so that good may come to us? Because God is going to be vindicated, right? Yes, he will be vindicated in the judgment, by your evil or by your righteousness, either one. So then let's just do evil then. Paul says, no, ought we to do evil? He shows the ridiculousness of the argument by saying this. In Romans chapter 3, he says, certainly not, for then how will God judge the world? If, in other words, if God is going to actually judge the world in righteousness, we looked at that in Acts chapter 10, I mean in uh, Acts 17. If God is going to judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, Paul is like, well, as a Jew, you're not practicing the law, but no matter what you do, God is going to be vindicated regardless. He properly condemns you. He properly vindicates this person according to their deeds. What you're like, well, let's do evil so that good may come. No, because God, how will God judge the world if no matter what you do, it doesn't matter in the end whether God is vindicated. So the fact that Paul is saying God's going to be vindicated regardless of what you do. So you can't say at the end of the day, well, I'll just do evil since God is going to be vindicated. No, you'll be lost. God will still judge the world. And he will be vindicated no matter what you do. So I, I don't want people for sure to walk away with the idea that many Protestant churches try to say that judgment in our message is contrary to righteousness by faith. And it is not contrary. Judgment is a good thing for the people of God. In Daniel 7, it is when we are vindicated from oppression. You come to Revelation, it's the same thing, the judgment of the great whore. You come here to Romans, it's the same thing. Judgment simply vindicates the work of God in every situation. It makes manifest what his work and his grace has done. Any other questions that I missed? Yes, last one. Uh huh. Yeah. You said, how can what? 1844. Uh huh. Yes. Oh, the judgment has begun in 1844. So how does that relate to righteousness by faith? Okay. Easy. Christ is in the most holy place pleading for you. So he's placing his blood in the actual presence of God on the mercy seat. So when he goes into the most holy place, judgment began in 1844 because the day of atonement is the day of at one minute with God, the blotting out of your sins. So the way that that connects to righteousness by faith is this. Christ is going to blot your sins and my sins out by his blood during the judgment. You say, okay, so the result of that is, in 1 John chapter 3, he says, when we see him, we shall be like him, and we shall see him as he is. Does Jesus have any record of sins in his body? He does not. 
The Bible says we shall see him face to face. And Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. He's not just talking about, you know, symbolically you can't see God if your heart is not pure. He's talking literally. So what's going to happen is the judgment is a time where God is blotting out your sins and mine. The critical thing is for us to confess, to send forth our sins forward to judgment so that when Christ comes, there is no sin between him and I. It's blotted out by his blood. That's the end of atonement. When there's no one else who will come and repent, that's when he stands up. He's done. And there's no one else that will come and repent and give, confess their sins. They use the forbearance and the kindness of God as license to sin. So yes, that's how they're connected in terms of righteousness by faith. God will actually make us sinless through the blood of Christ. Literally. Literally. Huh? Oh, I mean when he's done with his ministry. Right, we're gonna be, we need to be sinless here before he comes. Because he's going to judge you according to your deeds. So our deeds have to be important. That's where the seal of God, the seal is not only um, sealing something to keep it in the state that it's in, a seal says this is authentic. That's why you have the seal of God. So the seal of God is what keeps you <laughs> in that state. So Ellen White uses the illustration of wax. So when you have wax that's hot, it softens it, and then you impress it with the image that you want, then it becomes the actual um, shape of the thing that you impress it with, and then when it hardens, it always retains that state. That's where you have the seal of God. So we'll be kept in that state of holiness, let him that is holy, let him be holy still, etc., etc., and then the place of authenticity upon us through the seal of God. Yes, let's pray. Got to dismiss. Thank you for your time, your questions, <clears throat> and your patience with my voice. Father in heaven, just want to thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be here um, in this seminar discussing what it means to be righteous by faith. It is our prayer, Lord, that you would guide us in our understanding as we go forward. We know that we cannot exhaust this in two hours and there is no possible way that all the things to be understood and studied and reflected upon can be taught at this time. But what we have shared, it is our prayer, Lord, that you would guide us. Guide us into deeper understanding through the Holy Spirit. That you will help Christ to be our roommate, to walk with us, to live with us to minister with us so that we can see righteousness in him and eventually invite that same righteousness into our own hearts. Father, we appreciate just the vastness of salvation that this will be our theme and our song. And I'm praying, Lord, for any soul here that has struggled with managing behavior and that you would take them to the next level into having that internal righteousness and purity and harmony. Bless us, Lord, as we go into the, the meeting this afternoon and into lunch. Keep us faithful. Keep our minds alert and strong is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. This message was recorded through a partnership between GYC and GYC Europe 
at the 2012 conference in Linz, Austria. GYC a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church seeks to inspire young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.